Well, friends, again, it's such a pleasure to be here with you all, to be able to worship with you and to be able to deliver the word of God to you all in this place. So I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn with me your copy of God's word to John chapter 2. And this morning we'll be in verses 13 through 25. Now, a lot of you may pick up on this very quickly, and I think even yet the title is right there. This is the passage that we know of where Jesus cleanses the temple. And for many of us, we think of this passage and we think of this picture of an angry Jesus, right? Well, today I actually want us to um, look at this passage together and, and realize the heart behind Jesus that is here on full display for us this morning. Now, to share a quick story before we jump into the reading of God's word, a while ago, a good friend of mine had actually asked me to watch uh, his dog, a two-year-old uh, golden retriever named Annabelle. Sweet little thing. And if anybody else has had a golden retriever, you know they are just the most adorable family dogs you could ever even imagine. And Annabelle is no exception. And see, my, my own dog, uh, who's two years old as well, a chocolate lab named Baxter, is no joke, best friends with my friend's dog, Annabelle. And so, as you can imagine, as I brought my dog over to my friend's house and his uh, he and his wife went on vacation for a few days or so. Those two dogs had the most fun time of their lives together. I mean, for three whole days while my friends were gone, they were running around the yard, chasing balls, chasing sticks, chasing each other, <laughs> chasing more things that I might not even know about, and literally just like tackling each other left and right, just having the time of their lives. But the whole day on day four, right before my friend Brett and his wife got back from their vacation, it rained in Lynchburg. And for those of you who might have visited Lynchburg, I'm, I'm from Lynchburg myself, you know that when it rains in Lynchburg, it rains in Lynchburg. In fact, us locals even jokingly call Lynchburg Drenchburg because everything just becomes muddy for days afterwards. And I think we may have experienced a little bit of that even here from what I gathered just the last couple of days. And so, of course, those two dogs were cooped up inside, as you can imagine, on that fourth day, right? They were getting antsy and anxious. Come on, let me out, let me out. Well, finally, you know, I, I took pity on them and I let them out. You know, I thought, okay, well, you know what? They have to go outside at some point. They have to get a little energy out. What harm could just two minutes out in the rain do, right? And I see people shaking their heads and smiling, rightfully so, because I learned the lesson the hard way. You know, as soon as they came back in, just going out there and coming back in, they were soaked head to tail. And it didn't stop there. Then they were off. Yes, I see the expressions. They were then off, tracking in mud of all different varieties inside that house, jumping on the worst, my friend's wife's clean, pure white couches, tracking in mud all over the living room. And so needless to say, I separated those two dogs faster than you can blink. But the mud had already made its way into the house. An hour later, and especially a bath later, those two dogs were cleaned up, as you can probably imagine. But then the real work began. See, I began to feverishly, with only hours left before my friend and his wife would get back, I began to feverishly clean up my friend's house to the best of my ability. Well, for this morning, we are about to see a somewhat similar picture to that here in our passage of John chapter 2. But see, this morning, we were about to see a far greater act of just mere cleansing, here we see the very zeal of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for God's own house on full, utter display in such a way that it would even utterly consume him 
And it would consume him to the point that he would physically remove those figurative dogs in our passage that had muddied up the worship of God's people. But friends, this is so much more, this passage, so much more than just a mere moment where Jesus went on a cleaning spree. Like I did with those dogs. This passage is especially relevant to us, and it speaks and even ministers to our own souls exactly where we need it, because it proves to us here, especially, that Jesus is zealous for each one of our purification. After all, we ourselves, you and I, are not all that unlike those two retrievers drawn into the muddied mess of this world on a day-by-day basis. You may even feel muddy yourself, carrying the guilt and shame of your sin that has either been done against you or that you have yourself done here into this place of worship. You may feel in desperate need of God's cleansing grace to wash over you. But friends, the gospel of Jesus tells us as much that he will not and dare not keep you in that muddied, sinful estate. See, he loves you far too much to let you go on wallowing outside in the mud of this world. And instead, in his goodness, he will lovingly wash you thoroughly and cleanse you and bring you into his home to worship him and love him rightly. But why? Why would he do this? Before we even get into the passage, why would Jesus do this? Well, it is truly so that we might enjoy purified, grace-filled fellowship with him. And so, friend, if you catch nothing else from this entire sermon this morning, please know this, that Jesus, this is our main point, that Jesus is zealous for your purification. And we're about to see this in our text of John 2, 13 and following, in that Jesus zealously cleansed the temple, the church, but even us as individuals. So those will be our three points for this morning. Without further ado, though, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and now um, hear the words of God himself here in this passage. This is the living and abiding word of God forever faithful and true and given to us in love. John chapter 2, verse 13 says this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. That's key. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, 
because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, this is the reading of God's holy word. Let's go ahead and come before him in prayer. God, as we now come to the preaching of your word, with these words still fresh in our minds, the very words of life concerning our living Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask, O Lord, that we would be humbled by your grace in this place, that we might be a people who diligently seek the scriptures to understand how not only this speaks about the death and resurrection of Christ, as all of scripture does from beginning to end, but how that redemptive truth, that historical truth, continues to minister to our souls and affect true life change as we repent of our sins and cast our faith upon the living Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, your word is now preached. I pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our midst, that I myself as the messenger would get out of the way, and that the word of God would go forth in the power that it has to all of us who have hungry souls, eager and ready to receive the very bread of life, Jesus himself. So we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, our main point this morning, friends, this actually, I believe, is in your bulletin as well, um, is that Jesus is indeed zealous for your purification. We're going to see this here in the first part of our passage in verses 13 through 17, where Jesus zealously cleansed, at first, the temple. Again, our passage tells us this, in quote, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers doing what? Sitting there. How offensive. Now, we don't have time to unpack the fuller context, sadly, of the whole Passover meal this morning, what was going on during that week. However, what is most important for us to know here and now is that this meal leading up to this point here when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, this Passover meal was a gift from God's own right hand to his own people. It was, as the Westminster Divines in our confession say, an Old Testament sacrament that he had established all the way back in Exodus 12 in order to represent Christ to us as the true Passover lamb himself. But not only did it represent Christ himself well in advance of his coming, it also represented all of the benefits of Christ to his people who would believe upon him by faith. And so here in John 2, we see the Passover as the occasion and the temple as the location of this whole week-long celebration. Believers were drawn to Jerusalem from across the whole known world at that time all the way to God's holy place much like we do even week by week here every Sunday morning. But this place was special here at the temple under the Old Covenant. It was a place where not even a hint of false worship would ever be allowed. And so in John 2, verse 13, we see that Jesus went up and into the temple, the house of his Father. Now, I know it sounds simple, but those small words sometimes are the most important words that we read. Jesus went into the temple? Why did the Son of God have to go into the temple? Why? Well, it speaks volumes of two key theological principles. First, that Jesus actually had to perfectly obey the law of God on our behalf. And second, he did this in order to lead us in our worship. 
And so in this way, Jesus both proved his divinity and his humanity in the incarnation right there. Both by obeying perfectly the law of God and fulfilling it on our behalf and leading us as people. But when Jesus entered the temple, we see what? That he became furious. Well, what made him furious, friends? In short, he saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship. He saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide from all around the various nations, since most of those who came from a far away land had opted to buy their animals for sacrifice, not well in advance, but right there at the temple court. And this actually went directly against the law of God, as some of us may know. God had actually told them, no, 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 buy it well in advance. Don't perform your act of commerce right here in my temple. And yet they did it anyways. And so because of their disobedience, the money changers took advantage of God's people. They didn't just set up shop outside the temple walls. No, they dared to take the place of God's holy worship inside of those same temple courts. And to add insult to injury to God, they charged the people around four times the going rate, according to the Mishnah, an old ancient uh, piece that we uh, know describes that time and place. So talk about inflation, right? Four times the going rate. (laughs) But their worship, more importantly than how much they were spending, their worship had become adultery. See, all for the cause of capital C, convenience, these worshipers had all fallen prey to a den of robbers. Now, these robbers had stolen so many things. They, they stole the attention of the people away from a true heart of brokenness and contriteness and replaced it with a concern over just how many animals they could buy in the moment to appease their religious motives. These robbers had stolen the significance of grace and replaced it with a focus on trying to earn God's favor in the moment. These robbers stole the joy of God's uh, people's salvation and exchanged their joy for a dry and ritualistic, man-centered religion. But above all, these robbers sought Keyword sought. They couldn't, but they sought to steal God's glory. How? By replacing what had been set apart for holy use with noisy shops and stands and stalls and tables, all lined with coins from around that known world at the time, lining the walls of God's house with their own commerce. And so Jesus rightly became furious over this debacle. How could he not? See, our God is a jealous God, and this passage declares as much to us. He is jealous over the worship of his people toward him, and he will not share his glory with any other. Nor will he ever let his glory be stolen, or catch this, his people and their worship be abused and extorted. And so Jesus threw down the gauntlets, so to speak. He fashioned a whip of cords, as we read about in this passage. He used every necessary force, in other words, to drive the workers of evil out from the holy place of God. He poured out their coins. He overturned their tables. And he spoke clearly to all who heard, do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
Brothers and sisters, if we're being honest with ourselves, you and I, myself included, of course, are not all that unlike the people here in John chapter 2 gathered for worship, thinking that we're doing it sometimes the right way when in reality our hearts are often so far from God himself. See, we may not think of breaking God's commandments in terms of robbery, as was happening here, but every time that we choose our own personal comforts, concerns, or even conveniences, as the people did here in John 2, over worshiping God wholeheartedly in spirit and in truth, we are effectively robbing him. And not only him, but we rob even our own selves of experiencing his joy and his goodness and his grace. And so, friends, my cry to you this morning is that we would see that even our worship needs to be purified. Thankfully, Jesus is zealous for this, is he not? And so this brings us to point number two. See, not only did Jesus zealously cleanse the temple, he essentially promised to cleanse the church, the entire bride of Christ, in verses 18 through 22. And he did this through, of course, as we know, his atoning death and bodily resurrection from the dead on the third day. Look with me, if you will, at our passage here, at what the Jews asked of him in verse 18 specifically. They say this, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, won't you show us a symbol of your authority, Jesus? Now, (laughs) I may or may not be speaking from personal past experience here, but... If you ever have been pulled over along the highway, maybe Highway 81 or 64, not too far from here, for speeding, going a little over the speed limit, (laughs) you're talking with the cop afterwards, and what is it that he's required to show you? His badge, right? Otherwise, why would you believe him? Why, Why? Who gave you the right to pull me over, right? That is effectively what the Jews were asking of Jesus here. You know, where's your badge, Jesus? They essentially were saying something to this effect. Jesus, what is the basis of your authority? I mean, sure, we also wanted to worship God, and we wanted to do that rightly even, but we couldn't have been those same ones to actually drive out the money changers from God's house. So who gave you the right? Were you just feeling fed up and a little rebellious in the moment? Or were you actually acting on behalf of God the Father Almighty in heaven? Friends, how did Jesus answer them? I love the way he answered them here. See, he prophesied. He purposefully guised his spiritual and even his kingly or magisterial authority in the most profound of all ways. He said this, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Yeah, amen. They were provoked by these words, though. And they essentially retorted in unbelief, who do you think you are? It took us 46 years to rebuild this temple. See, sadly, the Jews here in this context missed the entire point of what Jesus was actually saying. He was, as the word goes on to tell us, speaking about the temple of his own body, right? For he himself is the glory of God in the flesh. He himself is the dwelling place of God with man. He himself is the Lamb of God who is the true and better temple. And for that very reason, he refused to allow even this picture of himself prefigured in the earthly temple to become tainted with sin. It says the writer of Hebrews tells us later on in Hebrews chapter 10, 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, in quote, Jesus' words here, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Praise the Lord Jesus for his faithfulness to this covenant well in advance. See, Jesus didn't need to assume any degree of authority in our passage. He already had it. In fact, as my favorite hero of the faith, J. Grissom Machen, a Presbyterian pastor from about 100 years ago, who started Westminster Seminary in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, he's famous for saying this, that Jesus claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. In other words, he didn't need to pretend as if he had authority. He actually said, no, 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 thus says the Lord. And by the way, I say this, right? Especially in the Sermon on the Mount. I am saying this. That's how Jesus spoke. He already had all authority. And he would prove the same divine authority even here in John 2 and well, later on, really, in both his unjust death and bodily resurrection from the dead, which is uh, prophesied even here in our passage. And so we see that Jesus is true prophet, priest, and king, truly, even here. See, as true prophet, he dictates God's truth, even ahead of time. As true priest, he cleanses God's people. And as true king, he rules with equity and righteousness and fairness over God's people with righteousness. But in his mercy, from his heart of forgiveness and love for broken, ruined sinners such as you and I, he has gone to the most extreme of all measures to purify us, his church. See, just as the prophet Moses of old was consumed with worship, the worship of God, upon returning from Mount Sinai with the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, that when he came down and saw the rebellion of God's people, he immediately tore down that golden calf that they had erected and instituted God's law in its place for the good of his people. Well, in that same way, Jesus, as the true and better prophet, did the same kind of thing zealously by purifying the worship of God's people. Why? Because Jesus does not want his church to ever become enslaved or captivated by even a hint of false worship. Friends, this message preaches to our own culture, especially nowadays, doesn't it? So many churches are falling by the wayside and lending their ears to heresies of all kinds. And so this is why, even though it might be a little ritualistic at times here, this is why, though, we sing God's own thoughts and songs back to his listening ears every single Sunday morning. It's not just out of habit. It's out of true, unadulterated worship from God's people back to his ears. It is why we here at Edgemont Presbyterian are so careful not to conform any part of the content of our worship service to the passing fads and whims of this culture. It is why we treasure the gospel of Christ and him crucified and do not ever dare replace this message of true, lasting hope in Christ with false ideologies of self-help or politically driven speeches or entertaining light shows or dare I say fog machines, right? <laughs> As so many churches are doing nowadays. It is why, however, though, we lift up each other, positively speaking, 
not just what we don't do, but what we do do properly. It is why we lift up each other in fervent prayer. Prayer with earnestness for God to answer and for his glory to be made known here in our midst. It is why we do the hard work of openly confessing our sins to one another and our struggles with one another so that we might experience forgiveness together as the people of God. And that is my challenge for you this morning. See, friend, do you hunger for the word of Christ and the true liberating freedom that only the gospel affords to us? Is Christ your first love? Well, if so, yours will then be a spiritual vitality that is properly to be spurred onward and upward. Yours will be a pleasing aroma of Christ and a fragrant offering of praise before God Most High. And this will, in our midst, if we're doing these things, will be a direct fulfillment of what Christ prepared and accomplished even for us when he bought us and cleansed us and purified us 2,000 years ago, us, his bride, upon that cross. In the words of one of my favorite professors up in Philadelphia at Westminster, Dr. Johnny Gibson, he said this at the cross of Christ, that, friends, it is from Christ's riven side that God would bring forth his bride. Oh, how he has suffered for us in love. But why? Why would he suffer for us in this way? Why would he, the spotless, holy one, lay down his life ever for us filthy, vile sinners? Dear friend, it was all, all for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, despising its shame. See, Jesus' zeal, his joy, his burning passion, if you will, is for the cleansing and purifying of his bride, whom he has now clothed, in the garments of his own righteousness. And so in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple, also that he promised that he would cleanse his bride, the church, in due time. But friend, do you believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus is still able and now, in fact, zealous to cleanse you who belong to him, to sanctify you, in other words? Well, we see this implicitly in verses 23 through 25. See, in his zeal for every single member of God's house, no man or woman withstanding, Jesus stands ready and eager now, even now, to cleanse you and to wash you with the waters of baptism and the word of truth that sanctifies. But please hear me correctly. See, this is not just merely an evangelistic call. Although if you are not yet a believer in Christ, This certainly is a call for you to come to him by faith, even in this very moment, to confess with your mouth, as our friend said earlier, and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. But friends, this is more than just an invitation to come to Christ, even for the first time. This invitation, truly, to recognize Christ's zeal for us and our purity is a call for us even now, every one of us, including myself. See, this is a call for each one of us to enjoy the ongoing experience of sanctification as the gospel truth just washes over us by the word of truth and refreshes us day by day by day. See, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers is that he neither requires nor expects us, and praise God for this, to ever get our acts together, to clean up our own selves, in order to commune with him by faith. 
In fact, he knows that we are utterly unable to ever present ourselves as holy or just or pure before a holy, just, and pure God, right? So confession of our complete reliance upon him is, again, praise God, all that he requires of us. For he does not entrust himself to even our noblest desires to please him, and he knows our own failed ability to clean ourselves up, as verse 24 in our text implies for us. He knows our hearts. He knows we're unable. That's why he doesn't entrust himself to us. He alone is our Savior. Rather, solely by faith in his name, we are made clean and justified. Now, there's a powerful application here, then, in this gospel truth for you and for me, as we prepare to go into the workforce and our places of play and family and whatever it might be this week ahead of us. There's a powerful application here. See, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, which is very much tied to this same passage, we learn that our own bodies, in terms of sanctification, are truly temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. See, the text there in 1 Corinthians says this, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So do what? Glorify God in your body. But you might be saying, even right now, and maybe a doubtful, maybe a broken response. Yeah, but Rich, I, I don't feel clean. I've seen too much. I've been through too much. I have damaged my own body. I have entertained lustful thoughts in my, minds, in my mind. Even as a Christian, I have fallen prey to foreign loves and idols of my own heart. How can Jesus actually want me? And so to you, dear Christian, maybe even suffering silently, Christian, please hear this. See, Jesus knew all that you have ever done and ever will do. And yet, he proved that he still wanted you, not just out of obligation, but out of desire, zeal, wanted you by willfully dying for you upon the cross. See, his cleansing of the physical temple that we see here in John 2 pales in comparison to his ability and his willingness to cleanse you and remove every one of your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. And so friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we close, I want to turn your mind's eye back to the story about my dogs. Because who doesn't love a story about a dog, right? (laughs) Well, friends, in the midst of my sheer, utter panic over the mud that those two dogs had tracked in to my friend's house, especially upon those pure white couches, right? (laughs) My own dog, Baxter, again, he's about two and a half years old, he quickly, even though he's a puppy, quickly picked up on my facial expressions. He could tell immediately that I was livid over what he had just done. And so he began to sulk in front of me. And guess what happened? My heart, of course, immediately became full of pity over him. <laughs> now, I know he's just a dog, right? And for the record, dogs are not humans, <laughs> no matter what our culture might say in the coming years. <laughs> but I couldn't just help but rush over to him and just give him this giant hug. I love you, buddy, kind of thing, right? Again, he's just a dog, but he's my dog. 
And my love for him, even as my own pet, compelled me to comfort him in the midst of his dirtiness, even getting dirty myself in hugging him. And then I proceeded to wash him thoroughly and gave him a bath, (laughs) a much-needed bath. (laughs) But friend, Jesus has a far greater love for you than he does for a pet or a dog (laughs) or some obligation like that. See, your dirtiness, as great as it may be, whatever it is that is on your mind now, is of no surprise to him. See, he knows it full well. And yet, he is still zealous. Zealous for your purification as the gospel of grace continues to faithfully make inroads into your lives. He is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him, this open-handed posture before him. And he is still zealous for even your joy, your joy in experiencing and knowing the liberty that a clean conscience before the Father of mercies affords us as we openly confess our sins to him. And so he who is now raised from the dead will at the last raise you too with a body one day incorruptible, no matter what you've experienced. And so friend, especially if you're struggling right now, believe this word of the gospel over you, which Jesus still speaks over all of us who come to him by faith. I will, I want to be clean. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father of mercies, we thank you that truly your mercies are new every single morning. No matter what it is, O Lord, that is on our minds that we are plagued by, whether it be just simple things that we face in the day by day or things that are too heavy for us to bear, we ask of God that we would find that true rest and freedom solely in the cross of Christ, the one who loved us and who gave himself for us. We ask, O God, that this simple gospel message It's so simple that even a young child can understand, yet so profound that it takes all of our lives and even through eternity to fully understand that this gospel would continue to, again, make inroads into our lives. We pray, O Lord, that we would be a people who indeed recognize that we have been set apart, made holy for your purposes, and as such desire to live in accordance with that holiness. For, Lord, without the holiness of Christ afforded to us in the gospel, the righteousness with which he clothes us, we would never see you. But, Lord Jesus, we thank you for clothing us in that. And that is our only plea. And so, Lord, we thank you for these things. And we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.